Most of you are aware that over the last few Sundays, we have been steadily working our way through the New Testament book of Acts. And today we're coming to Acts chapter 17. And you'll find it on page 1723, page 1723 of the Church Bible. And we're reading together verses 16 through 21. Acts 17, verses 16 through 21. Paul and some of his companions, if you were with us last Sunday, you will remember, were on what's called their second missionary journey, and they had come from Asia Minor over into Europe for the first time. And they were in what was then called Macedonia, ancient Greece, and they're making their way down to Athens. And Paul arrives there before them, his colleagues are coming at his back, And so that gives you a historical backdrop of the passage we are about to read. So Paul is now in the city of Athens, the home and arguably the center of world culture and philosophy. And so Acts 17, verse 16, Paul is in Athens. And Luke records in these words. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating some foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Now, given that this is Father's Day, I wanted to give two gifts to the fathers among us. Now, some of you will be aware that I have a very finely honed sense of humor, and some of you would suggest that's a minority opinion. But nonetheless, it is there. And so for the dads among you, I'm going to give you two dad jokes. Now, my wife argues that there's no difference between a dad joke and a bad joke. I would disagree. But here are my two dad jokes for you on Father's Day. Please feel free to take them home and share them with your children this afternoon, whether they're coming for dinner or whether they're on the phone. Now, they will not thank you for these jokes. Someday they might, but not today. Uh, And here they come. Number one. My dad commented on how surprised he was to discover that he was colorblind. The news came right out of the purple, he said. Thank you. The one dad got it, so it's excellent. I appreciate that. Now, you may have to think a little about it, but there it is. And the second one's a little, well, it's a little more subtle, and it may take half a second, but here it comes. My dad is an ophthalmologist and regularly asks his patients, Did you know that the pupils in your eyes are the last part of you to stop working when they die? They die late.
See, I told you it would take half a second or two, but there it is. Now, I have every confidence you will forget to tell these to your children, but let me encourage you nonetheless, they'll enjoy them. Now, why am I beginning the morning sermon with all of this silliness? Well, first of all, it's Father's Day, and of course we want to celebrate the fathers who have had an influence on our lives. Some of them, as I said in our prayer time together, have modeled for us what it means to live out their faith day by day. They taught us to pray. They taught us scripture when we were young. They encouraged us and prayed for us from the moment we were conceived to our birth all the way through. And this morning, it's that theme of modeling and living out your faith you're going to see come up in the passage before us. And in order to enter into the passage where Paul is visiting the ancient uh, city of Athens, I wanted to ask you to use your imagination. And imagine, not so much that you're visiting Athens, but you're visiting Washington, D.C. And you have several days to visit the capital. And in your planning and preparation, you, in your mind, you had thought, well, I will go and visit the Capitol building, and I'll visit the Lincoln Memorial, and the World War II Memorial, and also the Memorial to the Vietnam War and the Korean War. I'll visit the Washington Monument. I'll get to see some of the Smithsonian Museums. There are 19 of them, and it takes several visits to get around them all. And so right in the center of Washington, D.C., is all of these great monuments and museums. And as you wander through them, you begin to appreciate the values we hold to be self-evident. And you begin to grasp the significance of the history and what it is that defines us as a nation. And likewise with Paul, he had heard as a wee boy growing up in Tarsus, he'd heard of Athens. And now as an adult, he has the opportunity to wander around Athens. And all over the place are temples and shrines to the gods of Greek mythology. And not only temples and shrines, there would be statues carved by some of the finest Greek sculptures, sculptors, and they would be in marble and stone, but also in gold and silver. And so there were religious artifacts, respect being paid to ancient Greek rulers. Athens had been around as a city-state since five centuries before Christ. And even today, Athens is an impressive place. As you look around the city today, up on the hillside, you're going to see the Acropolis next to the Parthenon. And it really is quite special. And as Paul wandered around, he's thinking to himself, as he came across a statue to an unknown god, And Paul, having been touched by the grace and goodness and love of Christ, had suddenly discovered that there's a world of a difference between an act of living faith and religious observance. All his days as he was brought up, he was told about the importance of eating particular foods on particular days of sacrifices and offerings at the temples, of feast days and festivals, of how many prayers to say each day and what prayers. And for Paul growing up, it was rules and regulations and don't do this and don't do that. 
And when he engaged and interacted with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he suddenly discovered that genuine, heartfelt engagement with God, a relationship with him was possible. Intimacy with him and growing in faith was now no longer something he had simply heard about, but it had become a living reality for him. And so for Paul, the difference between church attendance, if I can put it in regular terms or contemporary terms, and a living faith, there was a world of a difference. And here in Athens, as he moved around and realized that people discussed and debated ideas thanks to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and those who had gone before, he begins to engage individuals, as the passage tells us, both in the marketplace and in the local synagogue. He begins to talk about Christ and his resurrection, the impact that he makes on lives. He begins to talk about intimacy with God. And so the conversations begin, and that's, in essence, how this section of Acts 17 begins. Here is Paul. And he's reasoning with them, is what the passage says. And he begins to talk with two groups, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, let me take a couple of minutes and explain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. This is not the time to doze off. You need to pay attention to this. It's crucially important to understand the passage. If you're watching from home, please don't put me on pause and go and put the kettle on or make a cup of coffee and come back. Stay with us here. The Epicureans considered the gods to be remote with little influence or interest in human affairs. Epicureans believed that life was due to chance, a random concourse of atoms, and there would be no survival of death and no judgment. So human beings should pursue pleasure, especially the serene enjoyment of a life detached from pain, passion, and fear. And that was the Epicureans. God was at a distance. He wasn't really interested in humanity. And to live life in its fullest, you should have as much fun and laughter and joy as you possibly could have. Because after all, there was no judgment and no afterlife. And so that was the Epicureans. And then you had the Stoics. Now let me jump to the Stoics. Oh, sorry, wrong button. Let me try that again. There we are. The Stoics acknowledged the supreme God... But life was determined not by chance, but by fate. And human beings pursue their duty, which was a life in harmony with nature and reason. They were called to develop their own self-sufficiency, however painful this might be. To oversimplify, Stoicism was characterized by emphasizing fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. If I can put it in contemporary language, the Stoics would have made great Presbyterians. They were the frozen chosen. That was the Stoics. Over here, the Epicureans were the party chicks of the philosophical world, if I can talk in those, in those terms. Now, you may be sitting here this morning saying, Richard, thank you. I appreciate the definition of the Epicureans and the Stoics. But my question is this, what on earth 
have the Epicureans and the Stoics got to say to me in a 21st century cultural context? Richard, come on, please. Do you really think I'm going to bump into an Epicurean when I am in Publix or in Fresh Market? Really? Do you think I'm going to engage in conversation with a Stoic when I happen to be visiting uh, a coffee store or go somewhere for lunch? Really? I don't think so. In fact, Richard, for all of your appreciation of philosophy, Stoics, Epicureans, quite honestly, philosophy is not my thing. In fact, Richard, I did one philosophy course way back in my college years and it focused on René Descartes, his discourse on method, Cogito Ergo Sum, some of you will remember it, and it is, I think, therefore I am. And then I, as a young seminarian, used to say, I am pink, therefore I'm spam. And you can imagine that did not go down well with my professors. But that was how I treated philosophy. So what is the point in all of this? Why are we even paying attention to it on a Sunday morning? Well, let me suggest this. Here was ancient Athens, the intellectual, cultural capital of the day. And Paul began to speak into that culture. And I'm absolutely convinced if he was speaking to us today, he would speak into our own 21st century cultural context. And he would begin to challenge us about living out our faith in culture and society today. That's exactly what he was doing back then. He began to talk about the love and grace of God. The transforming touch upon our lives. Drawing us into intimacy with him. And living out our faith or their faith back then. And likewise our faith today. Now you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I see the connection. Well, let me take it a step further. In a 21st century cultural context, how do you live out your faith in a consistent, comprehensive manner? A way that enables us to be more Christ-like in raising our children, in our marriage, in our place of work, spending our days in our neighborhood with friends whom we love and pray for. How do we live out our faith day by day by day in a 21st cultural context? Well, let me remind you, and we touched on this a few years ago, but it's been a few years, and this may be redundant to you, but I hope it will be refreshing to you. When we talk of culture, what are we talking about? What are we talking about when we talk about cultural norms? Well, culture, as you know, was initially related to horticulture and agriculture. It's a phrase that was first used in the Middle Ages. And it was used initially for farmers who would take an open field. They would use a plough, of course, with oxen or horses and turn or till the ground. It would enable them to sow seeds and grow produce. And that was called cultivating and they would cultivate and nourish and nurture the ground to bring something out of nothing and that's where the word culture initially came from 
When you move into the 17th century, it took on a much broader meaning, and it began to mean educated. It began to be applied to science and music and theatre and studies and education. And so today when we talk of culture, we mean everything around us that helps us understand our world. Let me give you a definition of it that I think is helpful. Sociologists and anthropologists, those who comment on culture, would suggest that culture is the shared beliefs and values, the shared convention and social practices of a subgroup or an entire society. It is when we take the raw material and experience of everyday life and rearrange it in order to express meaning, it is when we think Excuse me, it is what we think is the good, the true, the real, and the important in life. In other words, the principles and standards we hold to be self-evident. That's what creates for us culture. Now you may be saying, okay, Richard, I see that. But how does that work with music, for example? When a composer takes notes and puts them on a blank page, that composer is creating. She's putting together melody and harmony. She is creating something out of nothing. She is fashioning it and nurturing it to create music that will impact the heart and mind and soul. Now, we heard spectacular music during our offering this morning, and it moved us deeply, and music can do that. Some of you can think back to your teenage years when the popular music of the day defined pretty much that generation and it became for you what sociologists call the soundtrack of our lives. Having said all of that, you may now be saying, okay, Richard, I appreciate that, but once again, what on earth does it have to do with me living out my faith day by day? I can't see the connection between the culture I live in and my faith. Well, let me suggest this. And some of you are about to get very uncomfortable. And some of you are about to say, Richard, I didn't come to church this morning to hear that. You're treading on my toes here. That's uncomfortable. Please don't do that. Well, let me give you some advance warning. It's coming. And I'm deliberately about to paint a picture for you about our 21st century cultural context. Because if we are called to live in a 21st century cultural context, the Holy Spirit equips us and enables us to live out our faith in that particular context. And today, and over the last, what could we say, 12, 15 years, as a nation, we have wrestled with significant challenges and issues. Some of them have been racial justice. Some of them have been economic. In fact, today it's inflation, which seems to be moving at an incredible rate. At other times, we have been wrestling with issues of the content of our children's education. We've been looking at human sexuality, gender dysphoria, abortion, the sanctity of human life. And these are hot topic issues in a 21st century cultural context. And how do we live out our faith in that society and culture? 
Now, if you watch the news on any kind of regular basis, if you follow what's happening across our nation, you will know that political commentators, sociologists, and so on, will tell you that political discourse has become so polarized that it is today defined by animosity, hatred, cynicism, skepticism. And once again, as Christians, how do we do the hard work of living out our faith in a nation which seems, from those who observe closely, is living in a polarized situation? And I mentioned this statistic to you a couple of years ago, and polls and stats tell us this that two-thirds of Democratic voters do not have a Republican friend. And when I read that, I was quite shocked by that, actually. And then the next stat said this, two-thirds of Republican voters didn't have a Democrat friend. And that polarization is not imaginary. And the question is this, as we live in a culture and a society that is polarized, how do we do that? I think we would agree that as a nation and a culture, we have contrasting views. Let me oversimplify it for a second. Some of us would say that our favorite meal is seafood. Others would say Italian. Some would say Chinese. Some would say steak. Others would say, no, I'm the very opposite. For me, the best meal I can have is vegetarian. This weekend, some of us will watch the Open Golf Championship. Some of us will prefer basketball. Some of us would prefer college football or tennis. And those are contrasting views. But there's a world of a difference between contrasting views and conflicting views. And culturally, politically, when we move from contrasting views to morphing into conflicting views, when we feel justified about attacking someone else for their views, we need to be very, very careful. Because God never calls us to do that. Never calls us animosity and hatred. He never calls us to tear someone down or belittle them. He calls us to do the opposite. He calls us to live out our faith in a 21st century cultural context and do the hard work of relationship building, of listening, of empathizing, of genuinely caring about the other person. Now, please understand what I'm saying here, and let me be crystal clear. I am not asking you to give up your strongly held, deeply religious or political beliefs. That's not what I'm asking you. What I am asking you is this, that when you express those beliefs, you do so with grace and kindness and love, and do so prayerfully, caring about the other person, not seeking to pull them down, not seeking to dismiss them, but in a loving, gracious manner, take a stance 
And as a church, we take a stance on abortion and human sexuality. We take a stand on caring for our community. We pray for our nation regularly. We seek to be out there helping those in need week by week by week. And we absolutely should. But we take a strong stance in some of these issues. But we do so with grace and prayerfully and carefully. Please let me encourage you. Try not to become cynical or skeptical. Try not to give in to the most recent news headlines that are alarmist and defeatist. But try to make a difference. Live out your faith in your workplace. Live out your faith in your neighborhood. Live out your faith in your family. And do so with grace and kindness and goodness. Carefully, prayerfully. I'm absolutely convinced Paul would do that. And I'm convinced that God calls us to do that. Especially when it comes to political discourse. And let me also say this as I tried to wind things up this morning. If we are ever, as a nation, to move away from political discourse that is divisive, that moves from contrasting views to conflicting views, we must avoid animosity and hostility and personal loathing. There is no place for that in Christian debate. There's no place for it in the Christian life. That doesn't mean at times we won't get hot under the collar. That doesn't mean that we won't say to ourselves, John drives me nuts when he says that, or I can't stand this person or that person. doesn't mean you won't get frustrated. But in our expression of living out our faith in a Christ-like fashion, taking a strong stand when we need to, but doing so with grace, that's when we begin to make a real change. That's when we begin to impact others. At the end of this story in Acts chapter 17, the passage finishes with this reminder that as Paul began to talk about Christ and the resurrection and his death on the cross, not many folks were changed. But a handful were. And today, 2,000 years later, if you go to Athens, there are churches all over the place. Because the gospel slowly but surely begins to make a difference. And where does the change begin? It begins with us. It begins when we pray. It begins when we do the hard work of discipleship and relationship building. It begins when we do the hard work of being careful what we say and genuinely caring and praying. Please hear me. Our faith doesn't belong in a museum in Washington, D.C. It doesn't belong in the National Archives. It belongs in our workplace our neighborhood, in our families, lived out day by day by day when we live out our faith in a comprehensive, coherent moment and refuse to firebomb other people, draw them down and belittle them. We are never called to that. Why? 
Because Christ does not treat us that way. Does he? He doesn't. He loves us. He gave his life for us. Our job is to live out our faith, as we said in that comprehensive, coherent, careful, prayerful manner. That's what it means to genuinely live out your faith in a 21st century cultural context. Not easy, but absolutely possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And thank you for the reminder that we need to resist turning contrasting beliefs into conflicts. Enable us, please, to refuse to vilify and hate, but to graciously, carefully, prayerfully, comprehensively, in a coherent manner, live out our faith. Enable us by your strength, please, to become more Christ-like each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.